Available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello and welcome from me, Nigel Hewin, to this week's Outlook. Uh, back after a br- brief holiday on the 12th of April. And in this edition, we'll be looking at, would you believe, the Premier Inn as an iconic building, well, that will be, Ma- will be Margaret, the origin and uh, differences of hot cross buns, a story from Ali called The Visitor, and Stella updates us on what to expect in this month, April, and, of course, you will all be familiar with Susie Dent, the uh, Dictionary Corner Girl in Countdown. We'll learn more about that as well. Uh, and finally, we're going to end up with the original ghost ship, the Marie Celeste, with Bill. But, of course, before all that, uh, we've got, uh, before we go to the news, rather, we've got the uh, your, your post bag. What's on, a little bit of what's on, would you believe? It's coming back this week, uh, and 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 uh, the usual uh, rundown from what's going on here at the centre, from I believe Hugh this week. But before that, we're going to go to the new. Not not with Hugh this week, I'm told. The big big nod on the other side of the glass. So I guess I guess it's going to be. It's going to be Joe then. Fine, okay, that's confirmed. So not, no Hugh, but Joe. But before that, we're going to go to the news, uh, local news with Elaine and myself. Outlook News. A fresh row has broken up between Coventry City Council and Unite over payments to the lorry drivers. Uh, the bin lorry drivers, that should be. Unite said the council had withdrawn some weekend payments linked to a deal to resolve seven months of bin lorry drivers' strike last year without its agreement. But sources at the council claim it has only stopped paying a weekend uplift to staff who do not work enough weekends to qualify for the rise. Some drivers who are working enough weekends still get the extra money, known as weekend increment, and those who work some weekends but do n- not, not enough to qualify get uh, overtime pay instead. The local authority agreed to include the weekend increment as part of the deal to end the strike deal, uh, but it said it needed to be reviewed so it is fit for purpose. However, sources at Unite claim that extra payments are for bin lorry drivers to make themselves available to work at weekends, and this is what has been cut without agreement. Talks between the Council and Unite are due to take place next week. City councillors received an email this week with a message from Unite's lead national office, Ono Kozab, calling their attention to the changes. The email, seen by Coventry Live, suggests that industrial action could be on the horizon if the spat isn't resolved. Mr Kozab's message to councillors says, You will be aware, of course, that following nearly eight months of strike action involving our refuse driver members, we did finally reach an agreement last year. I'm less sure if you are aware that for some of our members, the payments linked to that agreement have now been withdrawn over the last few weeks. We had agreed the review would take place, but equally no changes should have been enforced without first getting union agreement. 
Our view is that this now means that we are once again in dispute. He added, We are asking that while negotiations take place, the payments are reinstated. However, should this not be possible, then the next step will be to issue the Council with notice for industrial action. A spokesman for Coventry City Council said, We have not currently been formally advised of a dispute with any trade unions. Unite the Union has informed us that it's opposition to review an agreement on, on weekend working. Again, we remain committed to ongoing dialogue with the Union to resolve its concerns. A warning has been issued to visitors after tons of waste were left dumped at a beauty spot near Coventry. Coombe Park does not permit camping stoves, open fires or barbecues. A spokesman for Coombe Abbey said they were disappointed to find the barbecues and litter strewn all over the fields on the Thursday before Easter. Employees are said to work extremely hard to maintain the fields with the litter described as unsightly. Visitors have now been asked to take any rubbish home if the on-site bins have reached capacity. Any rubbish left piled up next to the bins can often be ripped open by birds and other wildlife. A spokesperson for Coombe Abbey Park said, Our staff work exceptionally hard to keep the park in tip-top condition, so it is disappointing to see sites such as these when we arrive on site in the mornings. Litter is unsightly and is harmful to wildlife. Please pick up your litter and take it home with you if our bins are full. It appears the group involved here had a great time in the park yesterday. However, they made no attempt to bag up this litter and dispose of it responsibly, which we find more than disappointing. Please be respectful of our parks and green spaces. Clean and tidy up after yourselves so that others can enjoy the park too. Angry locals shared their frustration over the situation on Facebook. Miranda Smith said, I just cannot believe people are like this in this day and age. To make the effort to go to a beautiful park like Coombe and leave it like that is beyond words. It is very disrespectful to the staff that work hard to upkeep areas for us to enjoy. <coughs> Shirley Vice said, Disgusting and no respect at all. It does not take a few minutes to gather up and put in their car and take their rubbish home. Birthday celebrations were on the menu at Coventry Home as one of the residents marked her 102nd birthday. Jean McCluskey, a resident at MHH Hollywood House, spent the day with her son Ian and his family, taking a trip down memory lane as part of the festivities. The home decorated the main lounge, and the unit Jean stays on with birth and the unit Jean stays on with birthday decorations and balloons. Jean's family bought some food to enjoy with her, as well as Jean's wedding dress, which she wore in 1947. She was also treated to a happy birthday song from Elvis, who was a nice, which was a nice surprise. Victoria Brown, activity coordinator, said, Jean is a very quiet lady and said she wanted no fuss for her birthday. We made a montage of her time at the home and stuck the pictures around her room. She was a little under the weather on the day, but it got a bit better before, later on. 
Jean loves getting involved in whichever activities we do at home and can still touch her toes when sitting down. She loves knitting and wears cardigans made by herself. She spent the day with family and FaceTimed her grandson who lives in Australia. Seeing her wedding dress, which she wore 76 years ago, was nice for her and overall it was a great day for her. A crumbling Coventry church that spent more than a decade empty is set to be torn down for a new care home. St Nicholas's Church in Radford is severely dilapidated and experts say it will cost thousands of pounds more to repair than replace. Its basement is flooded and contains damaged asbestos. There's a crack in the bell tower and the roof cover is missing, a report said. Significant roof leaks have been seen and inside the church's timbers are sodden and carpets mouldy due to water damage. All areas are extremely wet and damp, the report said. Once the roof and external fabric has been repaired, the property would need to be decontaminated and allowed to dry out. Electrics, heating and ventilation would have to be replaced and a full overhaul of its foul drainage systems required. The extent of the disrepair means fixing the church would cost £2.8 million, far more than the £2.44 million required to build on the land from scratch. St Nicholas's Church was built after the previous church of the same name was destroyed by bombs in the Coventry Blitz, the same night as the city's cathedral was hit. Modernist architect Richard Twentyman designed the new church and it was built in the mid-50s. But the Radford congregation moved to their parish hall over a decade ago after the church became untenable and unsafe, according to their website. The church is locally listed, but its heritage features have significantly reduced due to the disrepair planning documents say. It adds that there has been no serious interest in the building for community use and a marketing report shows the church has failed to attract viable bids since it went on the market. A plan to knock the church down for 14 affordable homes was withdrawn in December 2021 after council officers objected to the poor design. This month, a bid to demolish the building for a three-storey, 33-bed care home has gone to the council for approval. Nearly 40,000 trees were planted in just 18 months in Coventry as part of the Queen's Green Canopy, the QGC, a nationwide initiative created to mark the Platinum Jubilee in 2022, which closed on March 31, 2023. Across the West Midlands Lieutenancy area, more than 150,000 trees have been planted. <coughs> Originally due to conclude in December, at the end of the Jubilee year, the screen was extended to March 2023 to include the full tree planting season as lasting tribute to the late Queen's extraordinary service to her country and her people. While the Jubilee project has come to an end, the QGC has announced it will fund the planting of a specimen tree in the West Midlands as part of a programme which will see planting in each of the 98 lieutenancies across the UK later this year to mark the coronation of King Charles III. 
All seven local authorities in the West Midlands participated in the programme, which saw children and adults alike donning boots and wielding spades to plant some 150,000 trees, one for every 18 residents in the West Midlands, uh, including whips, standards, fruit trees and hedging, and in Coventry, 38,300 trees were planted. Businesses have also taken up the challenge. Amongst them, Seven Trent, who have marked their support for the Birmingham Commonwealth Games with the planting of 72 tiny forests, one for each of the competing nations across the wider West Midlands region. Two neighbouring high-rise tower blocks will be demolished in Coventry. Vincent Wiles House and William Malcolm House are set to be bulldozed in Wykin. Citizen Housing says the demolition is part of a wider regeneration plan for Wykin. Contracts are currently being finalised for the demolition of Vincent Wiles House to start at the beginning of May. A number of residents have already started to be rehoused ahead of the demolition of William Malcolm House. It is hoped this will be completed by mid-2024. Around 120 new homes will be built on the land, the housing company said. Consultations with the local community will be taking place later this year. Director of Regeneration at Citizen Housing, Kevin Roach, said, We are just finalising contracts and aim to commence the demolition of Vincent Wiles House at the beginning of May. This forms part of a wider regeneration project for Wykin that we announced in 2019, which will see the neighbouring block William Malcolm House also demolished. We are currently in the process of rehousing the residents in William Malcolm House and we hope to have this completed by summer 2024. Over the next few months we will be developing our plans for around 120 new homes that will be built on the site and will consult with the local community during the summer. Three sets of decrepit tower blocks are also set to be demolished in Tile Hill. A number of brand new homes will then be built on the land according to Citizen Housing. All current residents will be rehoused in the new development on Ferrers Close. A country campaign group which has been fighting to limit the number of homes in multiple occupancy HMOs for eight years have welcomed the latest development in plans to make this a reality. Last week, the City Council published a development plan document setting out how HMO proposals would be assessed using a planning application process through a suite of new policies. A consultation last September allowed conventions to have their say on what they thought about the proposals to introduce new policies to assess potential HMOs, with the Council taking the comments on board when creating the revised document. Some say the conversion of so many homes to HMOs has helped contribute to a shortage of suitable homes for families, making it harder for people to get on the property ladder and damaging communities. Others, however, said they saw them as addressing a diff different and urgent housing need. The development plan document is now at the Regulation 19 stage, the formal phase before it is submitted to the Secretary of State. The Council legally must now allow people to make any further comments which will then be considered by a planning inspector. 
People can make comments until just before midnight on May the 15th, after which the Council intends to submit the document to the Government for independent examination. People can view the document in person at all libraries in the city as well as, the, as at the Council House. Paul Maddox from Coventry Action for Neighbourhoods, which was set up to limit HMOs, said proposals for a development plan should have been started eight years ago, but said it was better late than never. Protesters who stormed the Dippy exhibition in Coventry over Easter have split opinion over whether what they did was justified. Two people were arrested at the Herbert Art Gallery after climbing into the exhibit. A dramatic video shows security guards tackling the pair, a 67-year-old woman and 21-year-old man. They were arrested on suspicion of conspiracy to cause criminal damage and two bags of dry paint were also seized, the police said. Protest group Just Stop Oil said their members had performed the stunt to raise awareness of their campaign claiming that new oil and gas means a death sentence for billions. But while some people supported the protest, others criticised the group for targeting the gallery. Some people agreed with the message the protesters were trying to get across, but disagreed with the methods used. Jane Innes, a Labour councillor for the Woberley Ward, wrote on Twitter, Tackling climate change ought to be a priority for all of us and the government's record on this is pathetic. But for goodness sake campaigners, please don't try to make your point by targeting free family-friendly attractions. Councillor Kevin Mayton, Lord Mayor of Coventry, agreed, adding, David Attenborough Wilde Isles put the warning of inaction on global warming very clearly. This protest just diminished the serious arguments and made protesters look just pathetic. The Bishop of Coventry's Easter message was a time of healing, peace and restoring hope. He said, We seem to live in an age of perpetual crises, pandemic, cost of living, war in Europe, international tensions, climate change, environmental destruction, and the list goes on. It's not difficult to see insecure, to feel insecure, as if everything is being shaken around us and life's becoming more and more precarious. It can wear us down and erode our confidence in the future. There are only so many threats of cataclysm we can take. There was a cataclysm in Jerusalem that changed the world. History was different after the death of Jesus. Nothing was quite the same again. Its impact resounds around the world today in the songs of alleluias that will be on the lips of hundreds of millions of people on Easter Day. People on every continent rejoicing that God freed Jesus from the catastrophe of death and raised him to a new life. The original meaning of crisis is decision. Crises calls decisions. They force us to choose a better way. In that sense, Easter is a crisis. It calls us to decision. Will we believe in life? Will we take hold of hope? Will we trust that there is a future for us? The crisis of the 21st century need not land us in despair. 
they can challenge us to turn to the ways of God, the ways that bring healing, make for peace and restore hope in life. Happy Easter, hope-filled Easter. That's the message from the Right Reverend Dr. Christopher Cockworth, Bishop of Coventry. Coventry's Belgrade Theatre celebrated its 65th birthday last week by welcoming hundreds of Coventrians to join them for a free lunch. The event also marked the culmination of the theatre's warm welcome scheme, which ran between November and March and helped support people through the winter months. During the scheme, the theatre supported the local community's warm, inclusive spaces, handing out free tea and coffee, and running activities including arts and crafts workshops, film screenings, and a creative play space for families. The theatre, which opened on March 27, 1958, recently announced a wide range of productions throughout the celebration year, including Big Auntie in the B2 Auditorium. Its CEO, Laura Elliott, said, Our vision today is much the same as it was when we first opened, to enrich the lives of the people of Coventry and beyond. In the last six months, that has meant for many, is simply providing a warm, safe space through our Belgrade Warm Welcome, which has supported hundreds of people in a time of need. Outlook News And uh, that concludes this week's local news from Elaine and myself. Now we have got an announcement, firstly the usual one about time. Uh, Actually it's only three weeks since we had the spring equinox, but we're already having an hour and a half more daylight now, would you believe? That's very quick, isn't it, for three weeks? (laughs) Yes, it's sunrise. It's noticeable if it stopped raining long enough. Yes, yes. Sunrise 6.22, sunset, it's one minute to eight o'clock in the evening. Now we have a few comments um, through Dave that we've no longer got what's on. Uh, As Sue has retired from that, so I've very hastily put some information together which you may, may be or may be not interested in uh, for uh, the, this month and going a little bit into May. Uh, for music lovers firstly, the Spires Philharmonic Orchestra and Chorus will be at Coventry Central Hall this coming Saturday the 15th of April performing Vorjak's Ninth Symphony from the New World and also Mass in E composed by Amy Beach in 1891. And on Sunday the 16th, that's this coming weekend again, at the Albany Theatre, there's a celebration of Father Ted with Joe Rooney. At the Belgrade from next week, the 19th of April until Saturday the 22nd, there's Drive Your Plough Over Bones of the Dead. In a small community on a remote Polish mountainside, a man from the local hunting club dies in mysterious circumstances. And this is the stage adaptation of Nobel Prize winning author Olga Togarczuk. I excuse my pronunciation, I presume she is Polish. It's her darkly comic murder mystery. Now also on Wednesday the 19th at the Sky Blue Tavern here in Coventry is Project Mayhem Comedy Night. And from the 25th to 29th of April at the Belgrade is Lord of the Flies, originally of course written by William Golding in 1954. 
and also at the Belgrade from Monday the 24th of April to Saturday the 6th of May is another performance and I presume these dates are correct because they do clash with the earlier one I mentioned just now of Big Artie, Corey Campbell's darkly comic family drama. Uh, many of you will be familiar with Chris McCausland, the comedian blinded by RP, who will be performing at the Warwick Arts Centre on Friday the 28th of April. And looking even further forward into May, on Saturday the 25th of May at the Albany Theatre is John Gobber's acclaimed comedy Teachers Leavers 22, an update of the original hilarious teachers comedy of 40 or so years ago. Now, I haven't got prices for any of those, but what I have got is all your telephone numbers. So if you want to write these down as I uh, give them to you, Commentary Central Hall number 024 3564 The Albany Theatre is 024 7698964 The Six thousand, and that concludes what I have in the announcements. So we're now moving on to something different. The person I said was going to be Hugh wasn't Hugh. Is it really is Joe? Yes, She's here with really me now. <laughs> hello, Nigel. Hello, Hi. everybody. Hello, listeners. Good to be with you again. It's Joe here. Um, Hugh is having a well-earned few days off. He's been working extremely hard over the last few weeks. Partly because I've been off and Rose has been off and various other people well, have been away. Also been very successful. <coughs> We've got, got this uh, money from the council too. Yes, that's uh, something that's I think. Quiet, isn't it, for well, a while. <laughs> we've had to keep it a bit quiet. No, we kept sure. him quiet too. I'm uh, right. right down. Yes, hasn't it? that's yes. quite true. Has kept him manly quiet. Yes, yeah. for a, lot, a long while. Yeah. I expect he's told everybody about that he now. Did, but yes, um, last last program we just released the award yeah, from the news. city council. Yes. The uh, integrated care board have awarded us. Yes. Two, two lots of money so we can employ people to do some community outreach work and somebody here to help organise activities with us. So that should be getting going soon. All starting when we can find the right people. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so Hugh deserves a bit of a rest. So, um, yeah, so it's me. I've got a few things I'd like to tell you about, but I'd like to start by just saying thank you to everybody for your really lovely messages and uh, responses following the news of my mum's death two weeks ago. I know a lot of people uh, from the community here knew Mum one way or the other. Um, she was a, a member here, coming regularly for events and helping out and enjoying the Monday Club and various yeah. other things for many well, years. Well-known name here, so that's Yeah, because, that's yeah. right. So it's lovely to have got all your messages. Thank you. <clears throat> I have put a message on Facebook, but for those that don't use Facebook, um, her funeral is on the 24th of April. It's a Monday at 345 Anyone that knew her and would like Is to go would be very the welcome. Creme. Canley Creme yes. in yep. the Cannon Hill Chapel. Yep. So ask me by all means or Hugh or anyone here if you'd like to know more, but that is the arrangement. So thank you all for that. It's nice to have everyone's support. So a few items of news for you. Um, the first couple probably have been mentioned a number of times, but just to remind you, um, on the bank holiday weekend, the 1st of May, uh, the Earlsdon Festival is happening again. Let's pray it's better weather. It's not nice out there today, cold <laughs> and wet. It? No, it's, it's real April showers, <laughs> isn't it? Yes, really is. 
So it's always a bustling event, and some years it's been really very hot, if I remember. Um, so the local area gets um, comes out in force, and we will be having a forecourt sale shop items and craft items and who knows what else. And that runs on Monday, uh, Monday the 1st of May. It's bank holiday between 10 and 4. So if you want to come along and take part here with us or uh, help lots, us out. Lots of bargains in the, uh, in the shop. Yeah, the charity bargain, charity shop bargains. Um, June's doing a great job on that shop now yeah. and we've got lots of new things that have come in. And the craft group always uh, put on a great display. So, um, yeah, it's usually a lot of fun. Yes, you can go and have a troll down the high street whilst you're at it. So, of course, we're always keen to have volunteers. If anyone knows anyone who'd like to help us out, that would also be very helpful. Um, the other thing which I know we've mentioned a number of times, but it is important, is the uh, local council elections on May the 4th. Oh, yes, of course. Um, so, just reminding anyone that wants to vote but can't provide ID in some u- usual way, there is a system for registering in advance, uh, or you have to do that by the 25th of April. Uh, or you can apply for your postal vote, of course, by the 18th of April. And if you need any help with any of that, do let us know. But uh, identity should, shouldn't be too much difficult because do they accept driving license, passports. Yeah, I believe so. Uh, p- um, the uh, passes for the buses too, I think, I think as well. It needs a photo ID. With a photograph on it, isn't it? Yes, that's the important thing, isn't yeah, it? Yes, yeah. that's right. Um, the other thing I've just been reading about, and I'm not quite sure what to make of, actually. I'm not sure if you've heard about this, Nigel, but I've been reading about the government setting up something called National Emergency Alert Announcements. No, that's a new one on me. Right. Well, I've just come across the information, so I thought I'd share it with you, and then we can all see what happens on the day. So, apparently, they are setting up a new system for sending out emergency messages to people's mobile phones. I'm assuming it's just mobile phones. Um, in the event of anything really catastrophic, regionally or locally if necessary, but I suppose nationally if if needed as well. Uh, I'm not sure how we should respond to that, whether they're worried about something. (laughs) (laughs) If it's a flood, you want to get to high ground. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) um, But I read that they are planning to do a test run of this National Emergency Alert announcement on Sunday the 23rd of April at 3pm. That's Sunday week, isn't it? I think. Yes, so we perhaps all should just see what happens. I, I yeah, I mean, the big problem is those who don't know about it might think it's for, for real, exactly. right? Exactly, that's, that's why I thought problem. I'd mention it. Yeah, absolutely right, it yeah. will, Apparently the message will say this is a, an announcement from the emergency alert system, and at the end they will say this, this is, is a, a test. test. Yeah, yeah. But nonetheless, it could be a bit disconcerting. And the mobile phones are, they have they? That's yes. the other thing. And you never know these days who's got your number, so Not I'm quite. just mentioning that just in case anyone Good does point. get a phone call. time was that supposed to be at 3 o'clock? At 3 o'clock on the 20th. Third of April. Sunday week, yeah. I'm okay. imagining it would be a text. Um, Presumably, yes. It won't be a phone well, call, it'll be a text message. Yes. So anyone with the audio on their smartphones will hear it as well. So we'll all um, confer after the event and see what we see all what, thought of we it. Know, if we know, if we did, <laughs> did hear anything at all. <laughs> um, and then looking quite a way ahead, but we've just had notification from the Learfrit Lions. They usually do what they call a walkathon every year, and this year they are indeed running what I'm calling a walkathon, but it's going to be called a more Move for Fun. So they've renamed it to make it more broad. 
Uh, it's on Sunday the 10th of September between 10 and 11 mm-hmm. in the Memorial Park. Oh, around the Memorial Park. Around, yes. Yeah. Well, so anyone who wants to join in, <coughs> it's a sort of sponsored event. So um, you can do as many or as few circuits yeah. as you wish. And it appears, because they've changed the name, to Move for Fun. I think they're trying to suggest that you can get around the circuit in any way you wish, really. So so it could be a wheelchair, for instance, rather than walking. It could be a walking, yeah. it could be a run, ride, hop. Oh. Yep. Skip, roll, yes. roll wheelchair, exactly. Probably not work bicycles, I suspect. That it, could be too dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> you might be right. Although I'm not sure about children. They might allow kids they bikes. They might do, yes. Yeah. So I think any way you want to get around, which is safe, will yep. be acceptable on the day. Yep. We'll uh, know more li- later, I guess, won't we? Yeah, yeah. yeah we'll hear more, yeah. Yep. Uh, and we'll, we'll have more information as time goes on. But that's just to let you know. Sunday the 10th of September, 10 till 11 a.m. And then lastly, rather nice bit of news from us. You will all remember that we've been trying to find funds for a new, well, second-hand but new to us minibus. Oh, are you? I didn't, I didn't know that. Yes, yeah, so we've good. been working... for a third one, will it mean, uh, basically? Well, we will. We have two currently. Yes, quite. Um, the idea would be... Uh, a priority, really, is to have two that, firstly, don't cost us a fortune to run. Yeah. And and maybe more importantly, are safe and have accessibility. Yep. And the Ford, the white van that we've been using now, is a great runner now, now that it's fixed, but it's not great for accessibility. Right. And the we're not quite sure yet, but the we, we are sure that we're getting a new bus. It'll be a second-hand one, but it's very new by our standards. Right. And it's coming to us from the Enterprise Club. Uh-huh. They Good. are upgrading their fleet. It's quite a large bus. It's a little bit bigger than what we've got. So ten seats plus the driver, I think. Good. Fully adapted. Tail and will lift. you keep the current Ford as a sort of emergency vehicle? Part with it? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think what we'll, we'll probably keep the Renault, which is the old yes, bus at the, the moment, because yep. that's fully adapted. Yes. Um, and the Ford, which is not adapted, we could consider keeping it and adapting it. Or, or we might sell it, yeah. offload it, and yeah. then upgrade the old bus. Yes. Yeah. So there are lots of possibilities. Yes. But it should mean that we've, once we've got all the insurance and tax and everything else we need sorted out, um, we should be able to get the second adapted bus out on the road hopefully fairly soon. Good. Excellent. That sounds um, good and, news. Uh, yes, it's great news. And we're yes. hoping to get the, um, the sign writing done fairly quickly as well, so it will be very good. much branded for Lovely. us. So, looking forward to showing that to everybody and uh, having a go in the driver's seat myself. Absolutely. Oh, you're, you're, you're <laughs> one, of, one of the drivers, are oh, you? I definitely well. am oh, one oh. of the drivers. Yes. That's right, yeah. Do you have your peak cap to go with it? Uh, no, no, not that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, all the scarves and boots and everything else, yeah. Good. So, that's, that's the news it. from here. Thank Excellent. you very much. Thank you, Joe. Uh, I guess you'll be back next week, possibly. He should be here, yes. Yes, week. you'll hear from you next time. Good. Okay, lovely. Thanks, Thank Joe. you. Bye. Thank you. And now it's time for Sarah to bring you up to date with the sports report. Outlook Sport. Good morrow, sweet listeners, and welcome to the crazy world of sport. Well, certainly football anyway. Now, the great thing about not being able to record just before Easter was that I didn't have to report on Coventry City's run of 10 straight wins and draws coming to an end. And my gosh, it came crashing down when we took on Stoke at the CBS Arena and lost no goals to four. Moving on swiftly, 
on, on Good Friday, Coventry travelled down to Swansea. Now, we haven't won at Swansea since 1950. And the latest six matches which have all been played at Swansea's new stadium, our result is three losses and three nil-nil draws. But now make that four nil-nil draws. It did sound a very good match though, so hey-ho. But the one big highlight is that Ben Wilson, our goalie, and he was only our second string goalie at the beginning of the season, has kept 18 clean sheets. In other words, he hasn't let a goal in for 18 matches this season. Not 18 consecutive matches, but 18 in the season. And the season's not over yet. And that record has stood for many decades and couldn't even be beaten by the great Steve Grizovich. Hey-ho. Now, on Bank Holiday Monday... Coventry were away to, sorry, were entertaining Watford, who until relatively recently were in the Premier League and still have many of their Premier players. But my, my gosh, it was a game of two halves. First half, Watford came out like bats out of hell and were all over us and no goals to two at half time flattered City because to me Watford could have been 5-0 up and unfortunately Mark Robbins our manager's half-time team talk didn't seem to have really worked this this game and it continued into the second half with the first 10 minutes but then Matthew Godden one of our strikers just managed to net a superb angled shot goal one goal to two to City and about ten minutes later Ben Sheaf scored another 2-2 two, two. now cue a most frenetic last 25 minutes you know it was one of those 25 minutes where you think oh I desperately need to go to the loo but I didn't miss this because something's going to happen. However, the final score was two goals apiece. Now, it leaves City in ninth place and three points off the playoffs. But it is so close. To put that into context, you get three points for a win and one point for a draw. Our next match is on Saturday the 15th against Queen's Park Rangers, but it's away at Loftus Road. Come on, City. Now, moving down a few divisions. On Good Friday, Leamington hosted Hereford and won two goals to nil. Cue a lot of positivity because Leamington, you may remember, are towards the bottom of their league and looking set for possible relegation. 
Now, the reason why I'm talking a lot about relegation and promotion now is that we're only about a month off the last games of the season. So things are really getting pretty hot. However, that didn't last long because on Monday they were away to Kettering and lost three goals to nil. But as an aside, sort of cheeky aside, the pitch was so wet and the match looked likely to be called off that even the ref joined the crowd of supporters out on the pitch with his fork trying to get that water to drain away. Now, Leamington are not on the table currently in the relegation position. That title stays to our our opponents, Blythe Spartans. However, their match was postponed yesterday. So if they win, they get another three points. But let's hope. Come on, ye breaks. You can do it. Now, moving down further in the non-league league structure. Yes, I know, it's confusing. On Saturday, Nuneaton drew 1-1 with Kings Langley. Now, Nuneaton are pretty sure of making the playoffs in the Southern Premier. Positions 1 and 2 go up automatically but 3, 4, 5 and 6 at the end of the season have to play off for the right to go up. Usually team in 3rd will play the team in 6th and 4th will play 5th. However, on Monday away to Mickleover, they lost 3 goals to 1. Come on, Nuneaton, don't slip up now. So close. Now, staying in the Southern Premier, but at the other end of the table, you might remember Stratford were pretty firmly bolted to that bottom position and looked pretty cert for the drop zone. But they are now 16th out of 22 after, after an amazing win of some goals, of some matches. Now, they in comparison to Nuneaton, beat Mickleover on Saturday. And I think this was a friendly they played against Tamworth because their main match was postponed due to, presumably, the waterlogged pitch. And Tamworth have a plastic pitch. But sadly, they lost it. But never mind, Stratford... I don't think now you're going to drop. Fingers crossed. Now, moving further down the non-league leagues. Yes, I know it's confusing. On the back of their win against Wolverhampton Casuals, love that name, on Saturday, Racing Club Warwick sadly lost by two goals to three against Warsaw Wood. How frustrating to score two goals, but the other team score three. Hey-ho. And on the back of their 2-2 draw with Histon, Coventry United lost to their local rivals, Coventry Sphinx, at Butts Park. 
Now, Sphinx had won on Saturday 2-0, but this was in the United Counties League, which they now head by a clear four points over their nearest rivals, Rugby Town. Rugby didn't play yesterday, their match was postponed. Which brings me neatly on to the game of rugby. Now in that great game of rugby, Coventry were away to Amtil, who we don't have a particularly good record against, but we came away with a 21 points to 45 victory. Pretty comprehensive and that pretty much seals our place in third in the division. It's frustrating because we're kind of 12 points behind the team in second but we're 13 points ahead of the team in fourth or it could be the other way round. But either way it's very sort of distant that we're hopefully going to be caught or overtake. Now, I just want to finish today, I know Nigel will be telling me to hurry up, talking about golf. You may have been aware it's been the first of the majors, the four major tournaments, that is the US Masters, where they compete for a green jacket, although I have to say the $3 million plus that's no doubt tucked in one of the pockets. Probably is pretty nice as well as the jacket. But anyway, the jacket is the ceremonial bit. Now, normally it's played over four days with day one on day one, day two on day two, day three on day three, etc. But not this time. Well, it was still played over four days, but the weather was so horrendous at close of play on the second and the third day that it got so far behind that many of the players were playing two rounds that's 36 holes and walking about 8 to 10 miles on day 4 you see the thing with golf is they will not allow players to be out in thunderstorms and you can understand why because A, it's a big open grassy field basically with big tall trees which are prone to attracting lighting. The caddies, that is the people that carry the bags with the clubs in, are carrying these bags with a lot of metal objects good for attracting lightning strikes. And the umbrellas have a big metal spike at the top of them which is even better for for attracting lightning anyway this became the fourth victory in relatively recent times for spain when john rahm won two things to say about john rahm firstly he plays on the pga tour not the live tour the saudi backed rival breakaway which I actually think is very good for golf but secondly he does pay great respect and tribute to the late and much mourned Severiano Ballesteros whose 66th birthday 
it would have been on Sunday, the last day, had he not been so cruelly taken away from us with a brain tumour. And he said, well, I knew said he would be up there helping me, and helping me he did. Well done, John. Now, I'm just going to finish my and finally slot by quite a sad point, actually. I'm sorry to report that Coventry United Women have become our first local side to be relegated. They have been struggling in the championship, as you'll know from my recap of their results, but their draw at Lewis 1-1 finally cemented it. So we just have to see what their future is because one of the big differences between the championship and the lower leagues in women's football is the professional status. Anyway, ladies, it was good while it lasted and long may, well, not long may you stay down there, but soon may you come back. And that is all your sport. Bye. Thanks to Sarah there with the sports report. And now we go over today with your postbag. This is Postbag. Hello there and a big welcome to your postbag and how great it is to have so many messages so I can just link them together in no time at all. Thank you very much and I'm thrilled to welcome back Derek Headley to postbag and he's following up Graham's campaign to bring back the What's On Guide on Outlook. Hello, this is Derek Headley. I'm failing to say what a fantastic job you're doing, but I do agree with Graham, and it would be nice if you could bring back the What's On Guide, as it was very helpful. Thanks a lot. Speak to you soon. Cheers, Derek. Thank you, Derek. Telling visually impaired people about what's going on in their area is definitely what talking newspapers are all about. So let's hear from you on the subject of the What's On Guide. Sarah complained recently that the buses telling you of the destinations don't always talk to you. She feels they don't always switch them on or switch them off. I passed on her request to Graham Whale to bring it up at the Transport Users Group. Here's Graham's reply. Yes, um, regarding Sarah Lewis's request that I might bring it up at um transport users at meeting um, well I would gladly do that I would have already done it if, I, if, if the transport users meetings had still existed but unfortunately central as it was in those days uh, discontinued them around about I don't know 2010, 2012 um, they said with social media um, they can get feedback um, you know a lot easier than uh, the expense of formal meetings and around the region and so forth actually it was a cost cutting exercise really it was a cost cutting exercise but um, yeah um, at the end of the day though uh, people do need to complain as individuals because you can raise things with them um, at meetings such as transport user meetings and they can say well nobody ever complains 
nobody ever complains. So it is very, it is very important that uh, people do complain as individuals, just to highlight numbers to let people, to let them know that it just it's not just one or two it affects it affects a lot of people. Um, but I, I'm sorry, I, I'd willingly, well, as I said before, I would have already raised the issue at the transport meetings if the transport meetings still existed. I've recently put a complaint in on a different matter, actually, waiting an hour for a bus which didn't turn up. And um, they apologised, of course, and all that, and they're going to send me some travel vouchers. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to do a few journeys before nine o'clock, past nine in the morning to make use of those travel vouchers. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it is important to complain if you're not happy about, uh, about something. Thanks, Graham. Tell us how you managed to get around, or what help, or what problems you have. Hilda, age 101, comes to the resource centre in their minibus. She tells you of her recent appearance in the Guardian newspaper. Uh, well, my daughter in France saw it advertised, and she set it up for me. And the, um, the lady from the Guardian rang me quite unexpectedly. Oh, and I didn't know what to say right off the cuff like that. What was the article about? Well, it was just about people who were over a hundred years old, and they came from all over the world. And there, there was actually another lady. 101 in Coventry. Her name, I think, was Woolly, but I don't, I don't know where she lived or anything like that. But, but mostly they were from America and um, South America and Australia. They were all over the place. Yeah. What did they say about you? Well, I just said to keep the mind active. Yeah. Um, but I do, I do puzzles in my head to keep my mind active. Um, the, the oldest one was 106, but he's still, he's just died. So, yeah. yeah. And we're mostly about 102. Yeah. Wow. And you're 101. Yes, I'm 102 in May. Wow. If I live that long. <laughs> okay. Well, I hope so. Thank you. Thank you, Hilda, and we'll look forward to celebrating your 102nd birthday on May the 25th, Hilda. Like Hilda, Bob Syme has got a lot of help from the Resource Centre, and particularly from computer tutor John England. Hello, this is Bob Syme. I hope everyone's well. I'm just getting over a very nasty chest infection myself. But I'm talking about the other week when I heard John England about Jackson, my first guide dog he mentioned, when I went to the collated classes at the Resource Centre to learn the computer. Good memory you've got there, John. Jackson, yes, was my very first guide dog. It was a lab retriever cross, a very big, powerful alpha dog. He actually was the oldest working guide dog in Britain, or one of them. He was still working at 12 and a half years of age. So you've got a good uh, memory for him. He, I, I know you used to say how big he was when I brought him to the resource centre many times. My next dog was Elliot. He was a lab retriever as well. But he suddenly passed away at seven with cancer. So then I had, straight away I had Topper. Topper had been with someone else 
for two weeks, but they couldn't handle him, so I had him. He's an eight-stone German shepherd, and he's nine years of age now. I've had him for just over seven years, and a wonderful, fantastic dog. I'd be interested to know how any of you people, the listeners, are getting on with your guide dogs, or people like Carol, Carol Bloxham. I know you said before you were waiting for a guide dog, Carol. Did you get a new guide dog? And if you did, let us know how, or let Dave know on postback so we all know how you're getting on with your guide dogs. Any of you are thinking about a guide dog, it'd be nice to know how any of you are moving on in the line of guide dogs or not having a guide dog. I know Graham, Graham Wells never had a dog and I don't think Graham would ever want one, but I wouldn't be without my dogs. Take good care of yourselves, that's Bob Sire. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about a guide dog that you have or have had. And tell us any doggy stories you know. And now we hear from John's friend Julia with her latest report. Lent is spent. I went to Torch and it was all about Lent. You have to give something up for Lent, but I don't know why. Uh, Some people say they gave up chocolate. Others gave up mobile phones or cigarettes. In Torch, they told us about Sir Philip Sidney, who gave his last cup of water to a dying man on the battlefield, and then they both died. So that wasn't a very good idea, was it? I asked my friend John what he was going to give up, and he said, Why do I have to give something up? I told him that the Bible told us to, and he said in that case he would give up the Bible. I don't think I won that argument. So we all started to talk about things we like to eat instead. Things like ginger cake, ginger biscuits, ginger marmalade and stuff like that. Ginger is very good for you. My friend John said it gives you a good run for your money. I wish my friend Eva would come back to the Monday Club. Julia. Well, Julia, I was pleased to see that she was there last Monday when Coventry's Lady Godiva Pruperetta came with sections of the Coventry's thousand-year tapestry. In fact, Sheila did a cross-stitch of the cross of nails in the middle of it. And after going without during Lent, here's Edwina to tell you about hot cross buns with new flavours. Hi everybody, this is Edwina. I expect some of you are feeling rather fed up with the way the weather is, but we can all look forward to Easter, which is a very special time. I always do think of Jesus and buy hot cross buns. I wonder if you do. And this year I learned that there were lots of different flavoured hot cross buns going on the shelves in the supermarkets. The interesting thing is that a man named Thomas Rockcliffe, he was the man that made the very first hot cross buns. He was a monk in the 14th century 
And that from that first time of him baking hot crossbones and people eating them and enjoying them, it started the hot crossbone tradition at Easter. I do myself emotionally feel and think of the suffering of Jesus when I eat my first hot cross bun. I hope that you will have a wonderful Easter, all of you. Take care then. I'll ask David to read out a list of the flavours and I hope you have some happy eating of hot cross buns. Take care. Bye. Okay, thank you, Edwina. Here's the new flavours. Lemon curd, cheese and marmite, masala and chilli, bacon, rum, caramel, ale, Cadbury's dairy milk and fudge. So, thank you very much, Edwina. And for your messages this week, please tell us how you spent Easter and anything else you want to talk about. I was fascinated with the article about Richmond Crompton and the just... William books she wrote. Which childhood books do you remember? Uh, as far as the portrayal of the Just William books on television are concerned, I thought that the way Bonnie Langford portrayed Violet Elizabeth Bott was exactly how I visualised her from the books. And if you don't send me the message for postbag next week, I shall scream and scream till I'm thick, and I can. And here's a quiz. Tell me what books these quotes come from that I used to read. The achefulness is terrific, my esteemed blank, said Hoey Ramjet Singh. And fishhooks, venables, why do all these hoo-hahs have to happen to us? Thank you, and bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. So, uh, Dave, there, as ever, with your Postbag. Uh, Coventry, as we've been finding out over the last six months or so, has a host of iconic buildings and many with architectural significance. One you might not expect from its name is the Premier Inn, but this is the reincarnation of a landmark building, as Margaret explains. The Premier Inn, located in the Butts, was originally the Technical College, a fine building looking more like a town hall. Work began in August 1933 and it was opened in September 1935. The building was designed by A.W. Hoare of Coventry and built by Garlicks Limited. The Prince of Wales, Edward VIII, visited it while it was under construction in 1932. The 260 feet long three-storey building has two wings, between which was a 115 feet long great hall. The building is a steel-framed structure cased in brick. The facade is of a classical design clad in reconstituted clipsum stone. 
The main façade is surmounted by four pairs of Doric columns, between which are carved panels showing the city's principal trades. Below the portico bears the city's coat of arms. The building was officially opened on the 19th of December 1935 by the Duke of York, later George VI. During the Blitz it continued to educate adults and children and housed Coventry's homeless. It was hit by a number of bombs but received little damage. The college was closed in 2008 and moved to a new site. The Great Hall was originally a lecture theatre and was used after the war by the Midland Theatre Company. It continued up to 2009 as the Butts Theatre, which closed when developers acquired the site. The theatre seemed lost, but with the help and support of the council, a 25-year deal was made with the developers and the theatre reopened in 2013 as the Albany Theatre. The Premier Inn, a new life for an older building. I hope you had an enjoyable Easter weekend, particularly with two lovely warm sunny days. Easter, of course, is the season of new lambs, Easter eggs and hot cross buns. And I've been looking at the story of hot cross buns. One a penny, two a penny, hot cross buns. Sweet, spice fragrant, fruit laced buns that have been an essential part of Easter for centuries. In 1592, Elizabeth I decreed that no baker should make, utter or sell any spice cakes, buns, biscuits or other spice bread, except at burials, Christmas and Good Friday. There's nothing like a ban to sharpen the appetite. The cross on the top, originally cut in and now made with pipe on white paste, is often said to represent the crucifix. But according to Dr. Neil Buttery in the British Food History podcast, hot cross buns, like eggs, go back much further than Christianity as spring symbols. The early Christian church slotted itself into festivals and the celebrations that already existed. Spring and the equinox were key pagan festivals, which they latched onto as convenient new life new life-focused revels that coincided well with the resurrection theme. Likewise, precursors of the hot cross bun have been baked as long as bread, with the loaf marked in four to represent the four seasons of the year, or the four phases of the moon, and make it handily easy to break into quarters. Irish surrogate bread is still made like this, cut with a deep X to let out the devil or protect against evil spirits, depending on the baker. Roman loaves found in Pompeii were scored into eight with a double cross in much the same way. These days there's fat chance of bagging a bun for a penny, yet alone to a penny. On the upside, you won't have to wait for Good Friday for your bun fix. The bakery aisles are stacked with cellophane packs of HXB, the industry abbreviation, from long before the start of Lent. They come in even more outlandish variations, but Red Velvet from Tesco and Bonoffi from Marks and Spencer, or the surely sacrilegious mature cheddar and stout from Waitrose, don't come cheap. You'll probably be paying 40 pence or more per bun.
Even the cheapest bonds I found, a tie between Little and Tesco at 99 pence for six, comes in at 16.5p each. It's not all bad, though. In the 1730s, when the one a penny, two a penny rhyme was first recorded, the old halfpenny you paid for the cheapest bond would be worth around 39p today, according to the Bank of England online inflation calculator. Fast forward to Easter 1972, when a reader wrote to the Daily Telegraph complaining that they were, were hot and cross and be expected to pay 2.5p each for a bun. With the help of the same calculator, I make that at least 27p in today's money. So you should argue that HSB costs less now than they ever did. But how much of a bargain are the cheapo buns? I tasted my way through 14 different classic hot cross buns, comparing sizes and quality to see which ones were worthy of your money and a lavish layer of butter. Not that hot butter is the only way to eat them. At Galupo Gato Bar in London, hot cross buns are stuffed with ice cream in the style of Italian brioche con gelato, a favourite breakfast food in Sicily, and an idea well worth pinching as it's the perfect portable Easter pud for us. The gentle sweet spicing is good with savoury food too. Try them sliced crosswise into fingers, toasted and spread with chicken liver parfait or cream cheese with herbs. In my taste test, I was looking for a fairly light texture, or at least not stodgy and underbaked, and a proper spice flavour, combined with that gorgeous smell. Good looks scored points too, as most of the buns look squashed, a telltale sign they've been languishing in stacks on the shelves. Plenty of fruit's important, well distributed throughout the bun. All the producers use soaked fruit, excellent for flavour, but a process that makes the raisins, currants and saltavas fragile. When mixed into the dough, probably with an industrial-sized dough hook, they get smashed. Only one bun from northern supermarket chain booths seems to be made with a gently handled dough, making for juicy fruit that pops in your mouth. It's almost like they've been made by a proper baker, and indeed, it turns out that family-owned baker Bells of Lazenby and Cumberbere are responsible. These boniest of buns aside, all of those I tried tasted good once toasted and buttered. So the cheaper versions are absolutely fine for a weekday tea. But when you want to up your Easter game, that's when it's worth pushing the boat out. Absolutely no ban on buns here. And the best ones are booze at one fifty for four. Sainsbury's Taste the Difference Fruity, one fifty for four. Iceland, one pound for four. But there are also the bad baddies. The Carp Irresistible Richly Fruited, one sixty for four. Little Rowan Hill Bakery, ninety nine for six. And finally Morrison's, one pound fifteen for six. Ali's been a regular raconteur on Outlook, uh, reading the short st stories written by Cynthia Townsend, who, uh, you will gather, is quite prolific. So Ali's back again, this time recounting her story, The Visitor. Paula had only been in the house for a fortnight when the black cat first visited. It eeled past the postman, tail held high in a curling question mark, while she was signing for a parcel. When she turned around, it was sitting on the studded ottoman chest in the hall, regarding her with slitted golden eyes. You need me in your life. 
its penetrating gaze communicated. Oh, no, I don't, she said. I don't even like cats. Her husband had a pathological dislike of animals. In all their years together, they never had a pet. But Julian was living with his new and younger wife now, and she was alone, in a house she really wasn't sure she should have bought, in a village three hundred miles from her old life, where she knew not a soul, and where she felt lonely and adrift, though she knew she had it tough, and she had to tough it out if she wanted to make a new start. She put the parcel down and tried to shoo the animal out, but it slipped past her and ran up the stairs. The estate agent had called it an upside-down house, which made it sound charming, but a bit shambolic. The entire upper story was a single huge room, with a small but beautiful kitchen at one end, and an inglenook fireplace at the other. The ancient roof trusses were exposed against the soaring vaulted ceiling, and the room was filled with sunshine. Looking out, she could see a great sweep of spangled sea. She had her offer accepted the same afternoon. Paula ran up the stairs, worried that the stray cat might do her new carpet no good, but it had jumped on the window seat, which Paula had earmarked as somewhere to sit with a book on a summer afternoon. Of course, she'd not even had the chance to sit on it, let alone read anything other than instructions for putting the bookshelves together. Hey, she warned it, you don't live here. The cat merely stretched out, arrayed itself like a furry obelisk. Its purr made the air tremble. Paula sighed and perched on the triangle of unoccupied space. She ran a palm over the animal's head and down its silky back, right to the end of its sleek tail. The purr became a rumble. When at last she took her hand away, the cat captured it and drew it back to its head. They sat like this for some time, and Paula began to feel the sadness and tension of the breakup, the divorce, and the move to drain out of her like water from a leaky bucket. After half an hour, the cat jumped off the window seat and ran back down the stairs. It stood at the front door until Paula opened it, then crossed the village, across the road, and waited on the other side. What? asked Paula. The cat fixed her with an enigmatic gaze. As soon as she crossed the road, the cat trotted ahead of her, its question-marked tail held high. She followed it past a row of granite cottages and up an incline. Halfway along this terrace, the cat stopped outside a cottage that looked unloved and scratched at the door. Paula stopped several yards away, suddenly shy as the door opened, and then an old man emerged. He bent arthritically, scooped the cats in his arms, and buried his face in his fur. Oh, there you are, Angel. Paula turned to slip away, but her movement snagged the old man's attention. You brought her back. Bless you, he beckoned. Would you like to come in for a cuppa? She tried to demure, but he was having none of it. His kitchen was tiny and a bit filthy. He clearly had a powerful resistance to germs. Seeing her looking, he smiled ruefully, his face as wrinkled as an old apple. I lost more when three years ago and never really had the knack of cleaning. Still, we get by, don't we? 
The cat rubbed up against his leg. He put out a bowl of food for her. The cat visited me, Paula said, sipping on her tea. Angel's very prickly. I always um, honour her choices. He put out a hand and shook it. My name's Arthur. Friends? Friends, Paula replied. After that, a ritual was established. Angel would visit Paula every morning, and later they would walk up to Arthur's house. The humans would share a cup of tea and a chat, while Angel demanded caresses from them both in turn. Paula learned about the history of the village, the local gossip, and how to read the weather. Without being too intrusive, she cleaned and tidied Arthur's she fetched him groceries, and sometimes the three of them shared fish and chips. Occasionally, another neighbour would join them, and over time, Paula's circle of acquaintances widened. One day, she awoke with a smile on her face. She'd not thought about her ex-husband Julian and his new wife once in the past 24 hours. When she went downstairs to open the door to Angel, she found that the cat was sitting on her step waiting. But beside her was a tall, bemused-looking man in his fifties. He ran his hand through his tousled hair and grinned at her. I found Angel in the road and picked her up to take her back to my dad, but she jumped down and ran back here, he said. He held out his hand. I'm Ben. She took it, and a bolt of electricity passed between them. I'm Paula, she said. Come in. The cat walked past them into the hall and sat on the ottoman chest. Its silky tail curled over its feet. The picture of satisfaction. So there's a start from Ali. Uh, now Stella, since the beginning of this year, has been telling us about the special features of each of the months of the year. And now we're well into April. Here she is again, and with, this feature of the, with the features of this month. The countryside is green again. The world is 17 again. My heart o'erflows when April sings. This goes a very old popular song, one among many as April is a month much celebrated by poets and the writers of song lyrics. I have a friend whose family members send each other cheering postcards at this time of year, bearing a quotation from the American poet E. E. Cummings. It's April, it's April, my darling, it's spring. One year they included me in the custom, which was so lovely, I kept the postcard on my fridge door for ages afterwards. The song April in Paris tells of lovers celebrating the spring in this most romantic of cities. Well, I went there once as a single person on a short break holiday and played my part in helping the path of true love run smooth. I met a pair of honeymooners who laughingly told me one evening over dinner that Paris wasn't quite what they'd envisaged. They'd been given single beds. Not only that, but these beds were at opposite ends of their room, separated by mounds of heavy furniture, and each night they waved to each other across the great divide. I, on the other hand, was ensconced in solitary state in a room with a vast, if rather lumpy, double bed. So in a matter of moments we were switching over our luggage and toasting the more satisfactory arrangements over a bottle of red. 
The most famous poem about April in England is the one Robert Browning wrote while living in Italy. The mild Mediterranean climate was better for the health of his frail bride, Elizabeth Barrett, but in the springtime Browning became homesick for the sights and sounds of his native land and wrote his home thoughts from abroad. Oh, to be in England, now that April's there, and whoever wakes in England sees some morning unaware that the lowest boughs and the brushwood sheaf round the elm tree bowl are in tiny leaf, while the chaffinch sings on the orchard bough in England now. Browning had, of course, completely forgotten about those Aprils when the so-called showers joined together in one long continuous downpour. But I know what he means, because April is my favourite time of year too. The word comes from the Latin aperia, meaning to open. The days when new leaves appear, so fresh and vibrant a green, and fruit trees come into blossom. As another poet, A. E. Hausman, writes in The Shropshire Lad, however long he lives, he can never have enough of this. Loveliest of trees, the cherry now, is hung with bloom along the bough, and stands about the woodland ride, wearing white for Easter tide. Now of my three score years and ten, twenty will not come again and take from seventy springs a score, it only leaves me fifty more. And since to look at things in bloom, fifty springs are little room, about the woodlands I will go, to see the cherry hung with snow. April has, of course, a very lively start. Do you ever get caught out on the first, all fool's day? One explanation of how this custom began is that in the days when the year started in March, April the 1st marked the end of the New Year festivities, when jesters or fools provided comic entertainment at court. One of the most successful April Fool jokes ever played was featured many years ago on the BBC programme Panorama, when Richard Dimbleby, father of David and Jonathan, a figure normally associated with solemn and serious broadcasting, presented a spoof report on the Italian spaghetti harvest. In those days, of course, the British public were largely unfamiliar with pasta, except in Heinz tins, and so were fooled by the sight of strands of spaghetti seemingly growing on bushes and being gathered by workers. Easter usually falls in April, any time up to the 25th. The word was adopted for this important Christian festival from the Old English Eastra, a heathen celebration held at the spring equinox. The eating of eggs and the giving of the chocolate variety on Easter Sunday derives from an old practice whereby a tenant worker made an Easter payment in eggs to his overlord. An old Easter game of rolling hard-boiled coloured eggs down slopes is still played in modern times, most notably in Washington on the lawn of the White House. The ancient idea of the egg signifying fertility and new life also became in Christian times a symbol of the resurrection. So listeners, have a lovely April and a happy Easter 
whether or not you're celebrating it with chocolate. Those of your keen followers of the television Channel 4 show Countdown will be familiar with Susie Dent, the dictionary corner lexicographer with a seemingly never-ending knowledge about words and their origins. So now here's Margaret with an article from the Radio Times. Eavesdrop. Long before guttering, roofs were traditionally built with wide overhangs to direct water away from buildings. The eavesdrop, as it was known in Old English, was the ground onto which the rain from those eaves would fall. A law prohibited house owners from building at a distance of less than two feet from the boundary of their land in order to avoid problems caused by eaves drip, water falling from the eaves onto their neighbour's land. The overhang also provided cover for anyone wishing to lurk beneath it and tune into their neighbour's conversations in the hope of picking up secrets. Standing under the eaves drip, or the eaves drop, as it was later called, therefore provided the perfect venue for picking, picking up gossip. Pamphlet Viewers would get excited by a pamphlet these days. Many of those posted through our letterboxes turn out to be the bump, which is short of bum fodder, an original referred to toilet paper. But in the Middle Ages, pamphlets were eagerly awaited as they contained a story of love and pursuit that captured the imagination. Pamphilus do amore was a play written in Latin. While its hero, Pamphilius, takes his name from the Greek for beloved of all, he was not loved by Galatea, whom he doggedly pursues against her will. The erotic work was widely read and reprinted in booklets known as pamphlets or little pamphlioses, and eventually the word became pamphlet and was applied to the booklets, not their contents. Strike As we continue to hear about industrial unrest, you might wonder what a word meaning to hit or take down has to do with a stoppage of work. The answer lies with the use of the word by sailors some 300 years ago, who, when unhappy with their working conditions, would strike or lower their ship's sails in order to stop any chance of going to sea. The annual register from 1768 records how a body of sailors proceeded to Sunderland and at the cross there read a paper setting forth their grievances. After this they went on board the several ships in that harbour and struck lower down their yards in order to prevent them from proceeding to sea. From there striking was applied to the downing of various tools as a means of protest. Words, words and more words. I, uh, unlike I expect many of you out there, have an Oxford Dictionary at home to check on either spelling or meaning of a particular word. But also, I'm interested in words. 
and a couple of years ago I asked for a bigger and better dictionary for Christmas. Come the day, and I tell you, I was very happy to receive the Oxford Shorter English Dictionary. Shorter it is not. Comprehensive it certainly is. It comes in two A4 size volumes, each about two inches thick, and each containing nearly 2,000 pages. No spelling excuses now. Uh, the original ghost ship, the Mary Celeste, found drifting with no one aboard, has been a long-time unsolved mystery, and the truth of it seems never to be known, as reported by Fergus Key and read by Bill. The mystery of the Mary Celeste remains as unsolved and intriguing as when the sailing ship was first found adrift 150 years ago this month. What struck the first people to board the vessel was how undisturbed everything seemed. Personal belongings lay untouched. The ship's cargo, which more later was intact. A single lifeboat was missing, as well as the captain's navigational instruments and the ship's register. Otherwise, it was as if the captain and his ten crew and passengers, including a child of two, vanished into thin air. Thus, almost from the moment she was found drifting in the Atlantic on December the 4th, 1872, the mystery of the Marie Celeste gripped the imagination of Victorian Britain. Had one of the crew gone berserk? Perhaps they had been carried off by pirates. Theories became ever wilder, from a giant squid attack Alien abduction in the Bermuda Triangle, despite the fact she was nowhere near that area. Even the creator of Sherlock Holmes would get in on the act, the short story, titled Bay Habakkuk, Epherson's Statement, in which he misspelled the vessel as the Marie Celeste, who gave Arthur Conan Doyle his first taste of fame. Dr. Rob Robinson, Maritime historian at the University of Hull puts it today. It's a great 19th century whodunit, or what done it. Mary Celeste had begun life 11 years previously in Nova Scotia, Canada. From the start, nothing about the two-masted brigantine, originally called Amazon, smooth sailing. Its first captain, Belil, on its maiden voyage, later died sank another ship following a collision in the English Channel. After only six years, working mainly the Caribbean trading routes, the vessel was abandoned for the first time after being driven ashore in a storm. She was renamed the Mary Celeste and bought by a consortium of US businessmen. Experienced sailor Benjamin Briggs was appointed captain and its crew, Three Americans and four Germans described as first-class sailors. His wife, Sarah, accompanied him, along with their baby daughter, Sophia. It was commonplace for ship's masters to take wives and children to sea, even though life was exceptionally hard, says Dr. Robinson. Diet was appalling, living conditions grim, and the fatality rate much higher than now. Mary Celeste left New York on November 7th, carrying 
1701 barrels of alcohol be used for fortifying Italian wines once the ship reached its destination, Genoa. It was followed a week later, another Genoa-bound vessel, Dei Gracia, whose helmsman would f first spot the ship veering erratically midway between the Azores island and the coast of Portugal. No one visible on board, Dei Gracia's first and second mates went to investigate. Found the sails not properly set, the rigging hanging loose. Two hatches were open, the covers next to them on deck, in the hold with more than three feet of water. A makeshift sounding rod was found on deck. One of the ship's two pumps was disassembled. The galley was neatly stowed with enough food and water to last far beyond the journey. It was the lack of anything to suggest what had become of the crew and passengers that was the most mystifying. Shipwrecks in the 19th century were reported in the newspapers frequently as car accidents are today. Derelict ships like the Mary Celeste were scarcely more common, says Dr. Robinson. Normally, the crew would be reported, having been picked up by another ship, brought back or put ashore elsewhere was their absence that fueled what we now call conspiracy theories. Mary Celeste was impounded in Gibraltar, ahead of a salvage court hearing. The stains on the captain's sword and ship's rail disproved by tests. Axe marks on the timbers were shown to have come from wear and tear. An early claim was that the crew had got at the alcohol, at least one barrel was empty, and killed everyone in a drunken frenzy. Subsequently, suspicion fell on the Dei Gratia, who had discovered the Mary Celeste. The court eventually awarded them just £1,700 in salvage, only a fifth of the ship and cargo's total value. Myths began to surround the Mary Celeste. Conan Doyle, a young ship surgeon, came up with one of the most fantastical. The short story of 1884, written three years before his first Sherlock Holmes story, involved the captain and crew being slaughtered by a passenger. The two most plausible theories concern the cargo and the water in the hold. The log included several entries detailing small explosions in the hold, not uncommon phenomenon, as alcohol naturally gives off combustible fumes. It was speculated that one such detonation had blown the hatches, perhaps frightening the captain and crew into abandoning the vessel. Equally, water in the hold might have fooled the crew. The sounding rod left on deck suggests they had the impression the ship was sinking. Perhaps the pumps had been clogged from its previous trip, which might explain why one had been taken apart. Three feet of water in the hold isn't healthy. It isn't likely to sink the ship either, says Rob Robinson. Most likely, explanation is someone made a chronic misjudgment. An eerily similar incident, eight years previously, saw a ship called the John Lynn, abandoned by its crew on a passage from Bombay to Liverpool, 
they were picked up by another vessel. Those who had left the John Lynn reported, nothing could be done to save her. When the ship was boarded, only three feet of water was found, as Dr. Robinson. Final entry in the Marie Celeste's log was made at 8am on November 25th. It gave her position at only six miles northeast of Santa Maria, the easternmost island of the Azores, close enough to have been visible. Perhaps that proximity convinced those on board that safety was at hand. If so, it seems they were cruelly mistaken never made it ashore. To sea again, Marie Celeste's third captain died prematurely after falling ill on board. The final captain, Hillman C. Parker, insured a worthless cargo for thousands of dollars and then sank the ship off Haiti. An investigation exposed the plot and the claims were withdrawn. Parker was ruined and died three months later. One of his co-defendants went mad. The other killed himself. The curse of the Mary Celeste is now firmly established. After our week's break, uh, Easter break, we're back uh, to an edition every week. Before I go, a bit of information on the coronation in just a few weeks' time. King Charles and Queen Camilla will travel from Westminster Abbey to Buckingham Palace after the coronation in the traditional horse-drawn 253-year-old gold stagecoach, described by the late Queen as a most uncomfortable ride. But as a nod to modern technology, the King and Queen will travel from Buckingham Palace to the Abbey before the decoronation in rather greater comfort. No, not in a brand new Rolls Royce or Bentley, but in the newest carriage from the Royal Muse, uh, the Diamond Jubilee State Carriage, very much a traditional horse-drawn carriage, but with a difference. It was built in Australia in 2012 and presented by them to the Queen to mark her Diamond Jubilee, and it provides much more creature comfort for King and Queen, boasting hydraulic suspension, electric lighting, heating air conditioning and electric window operation. So there will be a rather more comfortable ride to the uh, Westminster Abbey than the way from. And with that, until next week, it's goodbye from the Outlook team and from me, Nigel Hewin. <laughs>